The Old Testament reading is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 through 18. You must not act unjustly in a legal case. Do not show favoritism to the poor or deference to the great. You must judge your fellow Israelites fairly. Do not go around slandering your people. Do not stand by while your neighbor's blood is shed. I am the Lord. You must not hate your fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your fellow Israelite strongly so you don't become responsible for his sin. You must not take revenge nor hold a grudge against any of your people. Instead, you must love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, the word of God, the word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Allison. The New Testament reading is found in 1 John 2, 3 through 6. This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The one who claims, I know him, while not keeping his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in this person. But the love of God is truly perfected in whoever keeps his word. This is how we know we are in him. The one who claims to remain in him ought to live in the same way as he lived. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Matthew. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John 15, 9 through 13. As the Father loved me, I too have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. You know, whenever we come in on a Sunday morning, we're carrying different things. Um, and for me, it, was, it felt heavy this morning hearing the news of what happened in Dallas and more gun violence resulting in death in our country. And it seems every week we're reading another story. And so I want to pray for that as we prepare hearts to receive the scriptures today. Jesus, we pray um, for those in Dallas who are grieving pray for those in all places around our country who have experienced tragedy and loss of life and fear and trauma because of gun violence in our nation. We ask that you would be near to them all with your presence, with your comfort. We pray for all of those who are working on prevention and those that um, stand in really difficult places that you would protect them that you would give them wisdom, that you would continue to uh, guard them as they uh, are caring for other people. And we ask as the church that you would help us to know uh, how we are to live, how we are to respond. We hold on to the hope that this will not always be the story. But the story goes that when you come again, all weapons of warfare, all instruments of violence will be overturned. That the day will come when swords are turned into plowshares. They're turned into pruning hooks. 
that that which was meant to kill will be something that becomes an instrument for life. And we want to know how to live in light of that now. So would you help us as the people of God? Would you give us wisdom and help us to know what to pray, how to pray, and what to do, how to live our lives in ways that bring about life and help life flourish as we partner with you. And as we open your scriptures today, we ask that you would continue to transform us into the kind of people that live that way, that your word would be living and active for us today, that you would speak to us and help us by the Spirit to conform our lives to your ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you this morning. Happy fifth Sunday of Easter, and welcome to our new Star Wars background. Uh, this is one of the joys of uh, worshiping in a public school. We just never know what's going to be on stage on any given Sunday. We walk in and go, oh, we've got part of the Death Star behind us, uh, right behind the cross. There's some sort of message in that, but I'm not going to give that one uh, today. This is actually a little bit more appealing than we came in, and they were doing a Dracula play, and we had that, you know, as the backdrop for uh, a series, some chains, you know, jails and uh, bloodstains on the floor and all of those things. And we had to work that in a way, into a sermon in a different way. Uh, but today is the fifth Sunday of Easter. We're continuing our series through First John. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we'll be in 1 John primarily in chapter 2. Uh, but before we do so, I have to tell you something that happens to me every time I say the phrase 1 John. Uh, when I was in college and then afterwards as a youth pastor, I got a chance to do a lot of mission trips. Take college students and high school students, sometimes junior high students, uh, on a mission trip for a week or two weeks every summer, sometimes during spring break, just as a chance to go and serve and to learn about the world. Actually, yesterday I spent uh, all day with our Guatemala team. We're getting ready to head out uh, in June to go down to Guatemala for a week. So some of us were there at ropes all day yesterday getting to know one another better. It was a fantastic time. Uh, but on one of my first trips that I led for my undergraduate university, we went to go and work at this orphanage. Uh, and the place that we were living as we were doing the work there uh, didn't have any indoor plumbing. And so instead, we, when we needed to use the facilities, we had to go out back behind the living quarters uh, and use one of the three outhouses, which were labeled 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John. <laughs> And so now every time I go to read these books, I picture these three outhouses back behind this place, and now you will too. You are welcome. That is my gift to you this morning. First John is a sermon written by an original follower of Jesus, written around the first, end of the first, beginning of the second century. And John here is writing to a collection of house churches uh, around Ephesus uh, in modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to them as someone who's a leader, an overseer, an elder is the language that he uses uh, for these churches. And he's writing to them because their unity has been compromised. The unity of the church has been compromised by a group of false teachers who are beginning to say and teach things about Jesus that are not true. As we look throughout his letters, we can see that they're denying the full humanity and the full divinity of Jesus. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is fully God 
and fully human. And to actually separate those or to deny them is to miss the beauty of the gospel and to distort actually what it means to follow Jesus. And so John is writing this sermon to encourage those who have remained faithful to the gospel, those who have remained faithful to the church, those who are continuing to love and serve one another in truth as they are dealing with these false teachings in their area. And he's encouraging them to continue to participate to continue to keep what we talked about a few weeks ago, this Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship or communion. It's the idea of participating in the eternal life of God and the common life of the church. And John encourages them through the use of poetic symbolism. John, throughout his sermon, is developing several major themes or ideas about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. And he's using metaphors that are based on natural opposites that we observe in the world and in our everyday lives. And he continues to develop each of these themes in ways that overlap and circle back on top of one another. He'll be talking about one idea and then it'll bleed into the other and then he'll come back. So we find the same thing sort of covered in the circular way throughout his sermon. He's talking about life and death, light and darkness, true and false, love and hate, Colorado and Iowa. I had to use something this week because last week I said good music and country music and like five people wouldn't talk to me in the communion line. I, 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 it was like I was threatening the unity of the church by speaking the truth about country music and trying to help people follow in the way of Jesus. So I decided to go, you know, less offensive this time and do Colorado and Iowa because I'm from Iowa so I can dog on it. Uh, and really the challenge of living in Iowa is both the weather and people listen to country music a lot. Uh, so the, I thought they were kind of the same thing. Uh, but the first image here that John goes to in his letter is the image of lights. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him, that we've heard from Jesus, and declare to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. In John's theological imagination, light represents both life and morality. Light represents the source and the sustaining power of light that actually rests in God, and it represents the ideals of human behavior, of ethics, of morality. Light symbolizes both life and how to live it. And those ideas overlap for John. For him, the way of Jesus is the way that leads to life. He calls us to live or to walk in the light of Jesus that we might live. And we might experience true and full and deep life here and now as well as in the age to come. It's in Jesus, the light of the world, that the true life of us is found. And from that image, he develops two major ideas in this second chapter. One is the forgiveness of sin, which we talked about last week, that when we live in the light, we experience the forgiveness of Christ's cleansing work for us. And then the second idea he picks up is obedience to Jesus. That to walk in the light is to be honest about ourselves and our sin, to receive forgiveness, and to walk in the light is to learn how to walk in obedience 
to Jesus' teaching. He picks this idea up in 1 John 2, verse 3. This is how we know him if we keep his commandments. The one who claims, oh yeah, 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 I know Jesus, while not keeping his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But the love of God is truly perfected in whoever keeps his word. This is how we know that we are in him, in Jesus. The one who claims to remain in him ought to live in the same way as he lived. When we read a text like that, oftentimes the first sort of thing that comes up in us is a sense of nervousness. That we read a text like that and think, this is a really slippery slope to salvation by works. There's some pressure on us doing good things in order to earn God's favor. It comes up for a lot of us because our theological background is we're downstream from what was called the Protestant Reformation, which emphasized salvation or justification by faith alone and not by works. So we love that verse from Ephesians that we are saved by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And yet, if we read on to just the next couple of verses, we find that Paul then says, but we were created in Christ to do good works. We separate these things in really drastic ways, but the New Testament writers insist that grace and works, faith and obedience belong together. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. We're saved in order that we might learn to live a different way in the world and that through our lives we can participate in the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we come to him, we come to him as to know him and as a result of knowing him we learn to keep his commands. This is the essence of what we call discipleship. I've shared this quote before, but I'm going to share it lots of times over the years because I find it so helpful. This is from Dallas Willard talking about discipleship. He says, if I am Jesus's disciple, that means that I am with him. I'm not with him by my own merits. I did not earn the right to be a follower of Jesus. I am with him because of his gracious invitation to come and follow him. But I'm with him in order to learn from him how I might live like him. The more time that we spend with Jesus, the more time, the more we get to know him, the more we're changed by him. The more that we live in participation and in communion and in intimacy with Jesus, the more our lives begin to look like his. Participation in the eternal life of God must be lived out in our earthly lives today. It's embodied in action. If we know him, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. Which of course then brings up the question, well, which commandments? Jesus was a first century Jew. His Bible, his textbook, though he's referring to as the commandments of his father would have been the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are 613 commands. 613 commands. 248 do this 
and 365 don't do that. 248 positive commands, 365 negative ones. The rabbis used to talk about it in this way, that they said there were 248 parts of the human body. I don't know how they came up with that number, but the idea was there was a positive command for every part of our essence to embody and to live out. That all of our humanity is learning to walk in the way of God. And then there are 365 days of the year, so 365 no's. Don't do any of those things. But which one? Which ones is Jesus talking about here? Which ones are John talking about? He goes on in verse 7 and says this, Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. We're talking about still the ones that we already have. But an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the message that you have heard. But on the other hand, I am writing to you a new commandment. Say, like, make up your mind, John. Which one is it? Is it old? Is it new? He says, I am writing to you something new, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light already shines. He says, it's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. It's something you've had since the beginning that you've already learned, and yet it's also somehow new. It's the new old command, the new old commandment. It's new for John and for us because Jesus has revealed the full truth of the olds. It reminds me of what we talked about a few months ago when we were walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that he did not come to do away or to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, to actually show us what they were meant for. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. We've talked about this last week, that the word for law or in Hebrew is the word Torah, which is an idea that comes from a root that means uh, to throw or to cast or to shoot at a target. Law really just means instruction or aim. It's meant to aim us, to point us, to direct us to God's will and desire for us. All of those commands are meant to show us what God says to us about what it means to be human and how we're meant to live, what our morality or ethics should look like in a way that reflects the very character of God. And Jesus comes in and he reveals its full aim, its full intention. He shows us what the law was pointing to all along and doesn't do away with the commandments, but takes them deeper and fuller for us. It's almost as if before Jesus, we were walking around a bit nearsighted, that we could see some things, but there's so much that was foggy for us, so much that we didn't quite understand. And then Jesus helped us to see the full extent. Or maybe if you remember, if you're old enough to remember uh, those black and white analog TVs. I remember the first TV that I had growing up was this big wooden box of a thing that you had to annoyingly get off the couch to change the channel. I mean, talk about inconvenient. Those 10 steps were painful. So I, and then it had this dial on it that you had to sort of, you know, turn past numbers because 3, 6, and 10 were the local channels for us, but they had 4 and 5 and 7 and 8. It's like, these are useless on here and change those dials. And then you got this fuzzy, grainy, black and white picture of Mr. Ed. You're like, what is this? Or trying to watch a football game. And now you see a 4K Ultra HD TV, and you go, 
that's what football looks like. That, I didn't realize grass was green. I didn't know it could be that color. And the brightness and the depth and the vibrancy and the clarity, this is what Jesus brings to us. He comes in and shows us the vibrancy, the beauty, the depth, the clarity, the nuance, the color of the commandments. In John's analogy, Jesus has turned the lights up for us. We could see dimly, now we see more clearly. And John circles back then to that opening image of light, and he associates obedience to Jesus with walking in the light, and then he tells us what this new old command is. 1 John 2, verse 9. The one who claims to be in the light while hating a brother or sister is in the darkness even now. The person loving a brother or sister stays in the light, and there's nothing in the light that causes a person to stumble. But the person who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and lives in the darkness and doesn't know where to go because the darkness blinds the eyes. We get a picture here of what that new old command is. The new old command goes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 19. It's to love one another. The core of the Old Testament law is to love. It's to love God and to love others. The core of Jesus' law, of his command, is to love God and to love others. Jesus, what he does is he turns the lights on and shows us what love looks like in its fullest picture. John gives us a hint of what that means for us in verse 10. He says, the person loving a brother or sister stays in the light, and there's nothing in the light that causes another person to stumble. In other words, when we live in the light, there's nothing in our lives that will lead others away from koinonia, from fellowship with God and with one another, from participation in the shared life of the Trinity and the shared life of the church. It will lead them actually deeper into that life. This is at the heart of the threat that John's addressing with his churches. Others are teaching and living in ways that are contrary to the truth revealed in Jesus and leading others to follow them, leading them away from true communion with God and with his people. Paul shares the same concern in his letters to the Romans and to the, and to the Corinthians. Here, the issue for Paul was not false teaching, but the way people were going about dietary freedoms and their freedom about holy days, what we call holidays. Some felt that it was, they were free to eat food sacrificed to idols. They thought, those idols have no power, they have no significance, so I can freely eat from the food that's been sacrificed to them because I don't believe in those idols and I don't have that power. Others in the church did not feel that freedom. And at times, they could agree to disagree and not judge one person's freedom from another person's, um, you know, sort of temperance in that area. But there were times that they could not. And what was happening is people were exploiting their freedom and others were feeling led away from participating in the church. I, I can't actually go there with you and it's causing me to want to turn back to idols or to turn away from participating in the church. And Paul says, don't let it get that far. He says, stop before others stumble. See, to love means that we live with others in mind. To love means that we live 
with others in mind. And I'm not talking about living with others in mind the way that, you know, your college crush sort of consumed your mind and attention and just, I can't stop thinking. I have them in mind all of the time. I'm listening to the biology lecture and I'm thinking about that person. I'm going to the cafeteria looking for that person. I go walk through the lobby and go, are they there? Are they there? Are they there? Are they there? Not that kind of living with someone in mind, but the way that it considers how our lives impact one another. This remains as countercultural today as it did 2,000 years ago. We are encouraged over and over and over again to look out for ourselves, to pursue our own self-interests. We gotta look out for number one and gotta get what's mine. These are the sort of phrases of our culture. And oftentimes we carry this over into our relationships with one another. We carry it over into the way that we think about church. We're often wondering, what's in it for me, God? What's in it for me? And at its heart, it's not actually a bad question to ask. It's a good question. Jesus, what do you have for me today? Jesus, what are you teaching me? What are you showing me? What do you have to speak to my life? There's, it's a beautiful question, but it should never be left by itself. There should be a subsequent question that says, what have you placed in me for others today? What have you placed in me that's for the sake of someone else? This is why gathering together in worship really matters. It's why prioritizing our time together in services and in teams and in meal groups and all of those other things matter. We can get content and we can get songs anywhere. But you know what we can't do unless we're together? We can't share what God has placed within us with someone else. We can't actually take the very things that he's placed in us, the gifts and the pictures and the prayers and the words and the service and the talents and the resources and look another person in the eye and say, oh, you need that. I think Jesus is leading me to come alongside of you and to help. That's what love looks like. It's living not just with ourselves in mind, but with others in mind. In the church, with one another, we're called to live a different way. We have a different ethic, the new old command of loving one another, of living in such a way that our lives encourage and support each other's relationship with Jesus and our relationships with one another in the church. If there's anything in our lives that is hindering someone's ability to fellowship, we actually are called to set it aside. To say, oh, I'm going to set this aside for the sake of another person. Because love lives with others in mind, and love leads us to lay down our lives for one another. The heart of Christian love is the cross. Christian love is cruciform. It's patterned after Jesus's death. Christian love is a love that gives. It's a love that sacrifices. It's a love that costs us something. First John, he goes on in 316, says, this is how we know love. What does love look like? When Jesus turned the lights on, what did he show us? He showed us someone, God himself, who laid down his life for us and then called us to live in the same way. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. John is echoing Jesus' words in John's gospel. He says, no one has greater love than this than to lay down his or her life for his or her friends. 
Love requires that we let go of some things for the sake of other people. Love demands that we live open-handed and open-hearted to God and to each other. So the invitation from Jesus is an invitation to consider over and over again, Jesus, are you asking me to lay something down for the sake of someone else? Are you asking me to lay something down for my spouse? To lay something down for my kids? To lay something down for my roommates or my coworkers or my neighbors or my friends? Are you asking me to lay something down for the person that I'm sitting next to right now? Are you asking me to lay something down for the person that I hoped I wouldn't see when I came in this morning? Are you asking me to lay something down for the person that I avoided contact with, eye contact with this morning? Are you asking me to lay down something for the person who I disagree with? Are you asking me to lay down something for the person I feel disappointed by or I had an unmet expectation that went, an expectation that went unfilled? Are you asking me to lay something down for them? And Jesus invites us to lay down our desire for revenge. This is the essence of forgiveness. Doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries with people, but they say, I'm not going to try to get even with you. Jesus is calling us to lay down our resources for one another, often calling us to lay down our preferences and our comforts and our conveniences for the sake of one another. Because community can't be built on comfort and preference and convenience because it involves other people, which means that at some point our comforts and our conveniences and our preferences are going to run up against each other. Jesus calls us to lay down our time for one another, to lay down our allegiances to other things that our allegiance to Jesus and to the church might be preeminent in our lives. And New Life Downtown I am so proud and so in awe and so overwhelmed at the way that you all do this for one another. I get to hear story after story, week after week, of the ways in which you lay down your lives for one another. The way that you lay down and say, here, please come into my house. I want to welcome you into this meal group. The way that you come early and stay late to set up and tear down. The way that you say, I'm not sure how I feel about kids, but I'm going to go and serve in Jesus' name. The way that you lay down your resources. The way that you continue to show up in teenagers' lives. The way that you show up at Alpha and at EH and in our courses and groups. And the way that the CR team is saying, we're going to to come together and lay down our conveniences and our time so that people might find freedom in our city, the way that you lay down your lives to serve at Mary's Home and Springs Rescue Mission and Royal Family Kids and Safe Families, New Life Downtown, I am so grateful for the way that you love, the way that you live with others in mind, and that you're willing to lay down your lives for one another. Because Jesus' desire is that we would be known by our love. That we would learn to love one another in such a way that the world would take notice and say, those people, they love one another well. They care for one another well. They come alongside one another well. Because love is how we participate in the divine eternal life of God and the common life of the church. Love fuels our fellowship, and then fellowship fuels our love. 
But as Micah and Evan begin to come forward with the worship team, we have to remember, though, at every moment that we are challenged by a text like this, that we love one another because God first loved us. That all of this is rooted and anchored and grounded and springs up from God's love for us. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on 1 John, she says, there is a circularity to love that flows first from God to the believers and then back to God. How? As believers love one another. There's a circularity to love that begins with God. God's love for us, his never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up love that he revealed to us in the person of Jesus in his life and death and resurrection. The love of God that comes to us then can come through us to one another. And when we love one another, God delights in that love. But our ability to love each other is directly and fully dependent on our receptivity to God's love for us. So the invitation to us every week at the table is to receive and to remain in Christ's love. So would you take a moment, would you close your eyes? And would you take a deep breath and would you ask Jesus to show his love for you once again today? to show how high and how wide and how deep and how faithful and how eternal and how unchanging his love is for you. So many of us carry into these moments all the reasons why we think that we are unlovable and all the moments of pain where we longed for love and those that we looked for it in were unable or unwilling to love us. We begin to believe that because of our history, because of our story, because of where we came from, because of the choices that we made, because of our shame and our regrets, because of our brokenness and our weakness and our failures, because of all the things that have not gone right in our lives, that we are unworthy of God's love. And we think if we just get our lives together, if we just figure this out, if we just clean this up, if we just get this all taken care of, then and maybe then God would love us. But the gospel says no. The gospel says when we were at our lowest, when we were dead in sin, when we were lost in darkness, when we had no care for God, no love for God, no desire for God, when we were, when our rebellion was at his greatest, was at its greatest. When we were in that place, God sent his son Jesus to die for us, to rescue us, to come after us, to claim us. So receive the love of God for you again today. May his love fill you up in such a way that it spills out into others. In Jesus' name.
This is Jesus' table that we come to now. A mark, a sign, the greatest act of love. All who believe in Jesus as the true king of the world are welcome to receive regardless of your church background or affiliation. If that doesn't describe you, thank you for coming, for being here with us this Sunday. We're honored that you're here and we encourage you, keep coming back, keep asking questions about Jesus. If you are ready to begin following Jesus though, we invite you to join with us as we proclaim the Apostles' Creed and confess our sin and ask for forgiveness and trust him for salvation. This Apostles' Creed is something that we're doing all through Eastertide. And really, in light of this sermon, what we're declaring together isn't just a recitation of facts that we believe, but in truth, it's the essence of who God is and what God does. God is love and his works are works of love for us. So as we declare the creed together today, the words will come up on the screen. I want you to hold that. God, this is your character. This is who you are. And this is what you do because you are love. You are loving towards us. And at the end, if we feel so moved to celebrate, we can do that too. So let's say this together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, loving God. And even as we declare this love of God, we also know we haven't, we haven't fully acted and lived and responded the way that we should. So we come with proclamation of who he is and confession of where we've fallen short. Let's confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Beloved, it is my joy this morning to announce good news to you. Words that are true, not because I say them, but because of what God has done. So would you open up your hands and receive again this mercy of God. That Jesus has died for us while we were yet sinners. And this proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. 
as those who have been raised to a new life with Jesus, would you stand together now, raise up and greet those around you and tell them the peace of the Lord be with you and pass that to one another. We believe this, that Jesus is here. So lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right all over this room. Just lift up that praise. Thank you, God, for your love. It is a good and joyful thing to give you thanks, Father Almighty. You formed us in your image. You breathed your life into us. When our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. And it was on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death that our Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And so, in remembrance of God's mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim together this mystery of our faith that Christ has died that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. For those of us who are faith in Christ, we're part of a priesthood of all believers. Would you open your hands heavenward or stretch them out over the elements right now? We're gonna invite the Holy Spirit to meet us here through them. So by your, Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by your blood. By your spirit, would you make us one with Jesus, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Jesus returns in final victory. Amen. Amen, beloved. These are the gifts of God. I want to invite the ushers up. They are given for us, the people of God. Receive them in remembrance that Jesus has died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. This is your first time receiving communion with us. You can just watch what those around you are doing or you can scan that QR code. It'll give all the layout and instructions and whatnot. If you're unable to come forward for some reason, please ask someone around you to bring the elements back to you. But right now, this loving God has poured out, lavished us with his love and this is a worship response to him. The table is open. Come and receive again.